Hello and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible studies. I am uh, picking it up in uh, 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter. We are reading about uh, Saul, the first king of Israel. Now what, what we're doing is we're reading in the Old Testament. Remember, a lot of this has pretty much been a historical foundation for who we are, where do we come from, what, what's the whole faith thing about. And as the Bible is going along here now, it keeps narrowing it down to one family, um, which is going to be David's family, because David is the, this great king of Israel, and Jesus, the Messiah, comes from the line of David, who comes from Bethlehem. Sound familiar? Okay. So that's what all that is about. Now, the first king is Saul. And Saul starts out great. He's a humble guy. God is using him. Samuel anoints him as the first king, and he's doing well. But then he gets arrogant, and he gets proud, and he's building statues in his own honor, and he starts changing up God's commands. God would say to do something in a specific way. He'd kind of do it, but kind of elaborate and make it a little bit better from his point of view. It got him in all kinds of trouble with God. And finally, God said, forget it. I have decided that uh, I'm rejecting you as king and I'm going to turn to another. This is what opens the door for this guy named David. All right, so I'm going to pick it up at uh, chapter 16, verse 1 in 1 Samuel. Now, Samuel, who had anointed Saul king, was really bummed when uh, Saul messed up and that God had rejected him. And he's moaning and groaning, and he's all depressed about it. And we pick it up where it says, Well, the Lord says to Samuel, How long... Will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So now we're going back to Bethlehem here. This is the city of David. This is the city where his uh, descendants, eventually Joseph and Mary, went back to Bethlehem, the city of their fathers, to be counted. That's where Jesus was born. Okay? So, he says, I've chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king. Well, Samuel says, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. So, Saul, uh, Samuel knew the situation. Saul was still in power, even though God had rejected him as king and was raising up someone else's king. We talked about this last week. That, you know, just as soon as God says something, it's good as done without question but it doesn't necessarily immediately change. For example, when God said to Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Uh, well, as soon as they did, death came on them. Did they physically die that day? No, they did not. Wasn't quite for some time, but it was as good as done. When God says it, it's like it just happens. Um, we talked about you know, how oftentimes, sometimes God will speak something into someone's heart. You, you might feel like God is leading you this way or that way. A lot of people, as soon as they feel that God is pointing them in a certain direction, they just run off half-cocked in a hurry to get there. Usually it ends in a disaster because they're impatient. They're not waiting for God to open up the right doors. It gets them in trouble. So the lesson from all of this is just because God says it right away, sometimes it takes time before all the doors open up and it becomes a reality to us, even though as far as God's concerned, it's a done deal. All right? Um, so anyway, he's rejected Saul, but he's still king, even though he's been rejected as king. He still has the power. And Samuel doesn't want to go anoint another king, because if Saul hears about it, he's going to kill him. So he tells God, God, if he hears about it, he's going to kill him. Now check, this is a really interesting next verse. 
the Lord says to Samuel in his objection and concern that Saul would kill him if he found out what he was up to. God says this. He says, well, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, this is what many people would categorize as a white lie. Now, what people mean by a white lie is they're telling you something that is true, but it's not really the essence of what's really going on, hence the white lie. Um, you know, I get what they're trying to say. It's not really a lie because God does not lie. I promise you, God has nothing to do with lying. Lying is, is from Satan. It's, it's, it's wickedness. It's sin. Is it a misdirection? Yes, it is. Would some people in American terminology consider that a white lie? Yeah, that's something what we would, but it's not really a lie. For example, if you, uh, you know, are going somewhere and uh, you give a plausible reason why you're going there, even though that's not your real reason for going, again, we would call it a white lie, but it's not really a lie because if you're really doing that, it's still okay. But a lot of people object to that because it's not the real deal. And some people say you should never, ever do that. You should always, always be blatantly obvious with your uh, motives and what you're up to at all times. Otherwise, you're not walking in truth. I don't believe that. Clearly, God didn't think in that way. Now, am I advocating walking around in falseness? No. No, I'm not. Uh, but it's, it's like, you know, some years ago, uh, you know, we were, uh, Deb and I were part of a ministry, and uh, we had the opportunity to smuggle Bibles and literature into uh, the communist countries, into the, you know, behind the Iron Curtain in, in uh, uh, Eastern Europe. And when we got to the border, they would ask, you know, do you have anything to declare? And we'd say, no, we don't have anything to declare. And then we'd smuggle Bibles and stuff into the country. Again, some Christians were opposed to that and objected to that, said, well, you're lying. You're t well, no, we're not. We don't have anything to declare. Well, it's kind of a white lie. Well, you know, apparently God doesn't have too much of a problem with misdirection type answers, uh, especially if the uh, bottom line is still righteousness. So again, I know some people struggle with this, but you got to get a kick out of this. When, when Samuel says, Saul's going to kill me, and God says, I just tell him you're going to go, take a cow with you, tell him you're going to go sacrifice. And that was his cover. Now, did he sacrifice? Yes. So it wasn't a lie, but it was clearly a misdirection because that's not why he was, his ultimate reason of why he was going. Um, so anyway, you know, it's like, you know, brutal honesty, if, if it's, if it's going to bring about uh, the, the wrath of man or Satan on you, it's not the right, wisest way to go. You know, why would I, why would we pull up into a country and somebody says, you got anything to declare and say, well, yeah, we got Bibles hiding under the belly of the bus. I mean, why would you say that? Okay, it's, it's ridiculous. There's no reason to give that kind of uh, information out. So anyway, there you have it. Now, so God tells him, just take a cow with you, tell him you come to sacrifice. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, okay? And I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So we're moving along. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Why did they tremble? Because uh, you didn't mess with Samuel. Samuel was a great prophet, a great man of God. Uh, you messed with prophets and ticked them off. Boom, the judgment of God would come upon you. So these guys had a pretty healthy respect for the man of God. And so they're freaking out, you know, are you here in peace? You know, did we do something wrong? Why did you show up? 
And Sam says, yeah, yeah, I'm here in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Well, kind of. Okay, anyway, consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So he specifically goes after Jesse. Why? Because God told him, Jesse of Bethlehem, one of his sons, is going to be this next king. So when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, which was uh, Jesse's oldest son. Nice looking guy, very impressive looking young man. And Samuel, uh, Samuel thought to himself, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. I mean, this is a sharp-looking guy. Remember, Saul was pretty sharp-looking, and he was tall, impressive. He was taller than any of the, anybody else. You know, it was like, wow, he was kind of like a man-made, you know, custom-fit leader, as people would think in their minds. So, you know, when he sees Eliab, he goes, wow, this, this has got to be the one. Uh, but the Lord, now this is an interesting verse. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Good for people like me. But anyway, don't consider his appearance or height, for I have rejected him, the really good-looking guy. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. <laughs> Thank God for those of us who aren't particularly brilliant from the outward appearance. You know, it's not the physical that God is impressed with. He's impressed with your heart if your heart is in the right place. So he's trying to tell Samuel, look, we're not looking for someone who looks like a cool leader. I'm looking for someone who has the heart of a leader. And sometimes the guys with hearts of a leader come in very uh, surprising packages that people would never think in a million years, wow, I would never think it from that guy. But, uh, you know, it's, again, it's not about the physical appearance. It's about the heart. Okay? By the way, this is not an excuse to look like a slob. <laughs> Don't, don't come to church looking like, you know, like, like, a, like the cat just dragged you in and say, well, God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. You know, we're not giving you a license to just look awful, okay? It's just, anyway, I think you get it. Now, so then Jesse calls Abinadad. He's son number two and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, well, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Well, then Jesse had Shammah passed by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. He's waiting. You know, what, what's the deal? So Jesse had seven of his sons. Jesse had been a busy boy. Seven sons so far walked by and passed before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, Jesse says, well, they're still the youngest, but he's tending the sheep. I mean, this, he's a young guy. We don't know how old he is. A lot of speculation 17, maybe younger. Uh, we don't really know. But he's a young guy and really not, didn't come across maybe as the most manly of men. And, and we know from, uh, as we read along here, that he was a musician. He played the harp, you know. I mean, a lot of guys, you know, playing the harp is kind of a girly kind of thing. You know, it's like, yeesh, you know, here's this guy, he's, he, he, he does the lowly work as the, the, the lowest of the totem pole watched after the sheep. And then, you know, instead of lifting weights and being a manly man, he's playing the heart. La, 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 la. So, yeah, who know what they knew what they thought of him? But uh, he never even thought of even bringing him to, uh, to Samuel. He says, well, yeah, there's a young one, but he's tending the sheep, and he's kind of a girly guy. He's playing harps and stuff like that, and I'm throwing that in. 
Anyway, so Samuel says, well, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Well, nobody wants to stand there the whole time, so they rush off to go get him, and they bring him. So they sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance, handsome features, a good-looking young little guy, but the young guy. And then the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, rise and anoint him. He's the one. Ooh, the, the runt of the litter. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And then Samuel went back to Ramah. All right, so now he's been anointed king. Does he become king that day? No. God sends, I mean, I, David, who knew what was even going on? You know, he's hanging out with a sheep, man. All of a sudden, they call him up, and he probably stinks, and he's kind of grody and a young guy, and all of a sudden, this old guy comes and anoints him with oil and anoints him before the Lord, makes him king and leaves. And I'm not sure David knew anything. He was back tending the sheep. Nothing had changed. On the exterior, nothing had changed. But on the interior, everything had changed. This was, as far as God was concerned, was the next king of Israel. Now, it took years before that became a reality. Again, don't be in such a hurry. As soon as you think God's called me to some great thing and just run off half-cocked and stupid. This happens so many times to people who feel God's called them to do something. And with no evidence that God is opening doors or the timing isn't right, they just run off. Well, God told me God, so I really feel God put it on my heart. Slow down. Listen to those of, who are your elders in the Lord. The Bible says in the multitude of counselors there is wisdom. Listen to people. Don't be just running off. Talk to your pastors and elders and stuff like that and let us pray with you and let's see God start to open up the doors. Even though you think God's clearly told you something, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen today. Even though God might have spoke to you today. All right? All right, now. Now we have this next a uh, few chapters here, or, or not chapter, but verse, about 11 verses or so, that seems a little odd. Um, what we're going to see is uh, how David gets pulled into the service of Saul. But then we read the story of David and Goliath. And we read at the end of that story of David and Goliath, Saul goes, who is this young guy? So, a couple of possibilities here. Either this little section is out of order in terms of chronological, and we see that. We've seen that a lot in the Old Testament. They'll say something as if it's already done, and then they tell you the story of how it got there. I mean, we saw that over and over again. So that might be what's happening here. I don't know. Uh, the other possibility is Saul is king, and he's probably got a ton of guys around him and didn't remember who he was. He's just some lowly harp player. I don't know. Uh, my best guess is this probably is one of those things where it gives you a little bit of a picture before it actually happens. Anyway, you know, it's one of these things sometimes where people will say, you know, the Bible's full of contradictions. You know, the Bible's full of contradictions. Well, particularly in the Old Testament, there are some seeming uh, contradictions because, you know, they wrote and, and communicate in such a way that we don't always understand. Uh, it also shows the human element. These were men. Who did these things? Not perfect angels from God and not God physically himself. These were men anointed by God. But there's a human element. Some of these things, you know, and, and Bible scholars will kind of wrestle some of these things and try and figure out. And, and then, you know, critical people say, well, you know, that doesn't make sense. This came before that and there's contradictions, contradictions. You have to understand something. While there might be things like that that pop up in, in the recorded scriptures, they are by and large of no consequence. 
you know, whether one guy, you know, put his left foot in first or his right foot in first, sounds like the hokey pokey, you know, what, what exactly, what's, whether or not that's exactly the way that panned out, who cares? It doesn't matter. It's not all the stuff of great consequence of God's righteousness and holiness and Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. All these things are crystal clear and supported over and over and over again. In the clearest of ways, God's mercies and forgiveness and his righteousness, his judgments, all these things are clear as can be in the scriptures. Don't let people rattle you who can find some bizarre little points of scripture that look like this verse contradicts that little verse over here. Again, does it actually contradict? Is it just a matter of misunderstanding the way things were recorded? Who knows? In any case, they are things of no consequence. They're just people looking for things, trying to create doubt in your heart and try to justify their own sin. See, what they're saying is, well, I can sin. I don't believe in God because this verse over here came before this verse. It doesn't make any sense. So anyway, don't, don't let that stuff freak you out. Those things don't really matter. Anyway, after all that rambling, let me read the part I'm talking about. Now, the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Okay, now an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, uh, Bible scholars obviously have wrestled over that word evil. Uh, some uh, say it should be translated an injurious spirit. That makes more sense. I mean, God doesn't do anything evil and there is nothing evil from God. It would be evil strictly from Saul's perspective because it tormented him. And uh, say, well, would angels do anything uh, potentially injurious sure remember when adam and eve uh, fell and god put an angel at at the head of the uh, in front of the tree of life to keep them away with a flaming sword and stuff he'd have cut them to pieces man i mean these angels do not mess around you remember the story of uh, uh balaam you know with the talking donkey and stuff like that and how the donkey was afraid it wouldn't move and balaam was mad because the donkey could see an angel getting ready to kill Bam, I mean, this, these would be injurious angels who were righteous before God but were coming with judgment who from, for example, Balaam's standpoint, if that would have killed him, that would have been very, very evil for him. So it's, it's not that God is evil. When this evil spirit from the Lord or this injurious spirit from God came, uh, this was judgment upon Saul and this uh, angel or whatever tormented him. Now, the other possible interpretation is that what happened is some people say, well, God allowed an evil spirit to come and torment him, maybe like a demon or something like that. Is that possible? Of course it's possible. Do we really know? No, we don't know. All we do know is either way, it was a result of God's hand, okay? I mean, sometimes people uh, use the idea of, you know, when, when God is bringing discipline or something because of sin or failure in their life, uh, they argue over whether or not this evil that's coming upon them is really God or just God's allowing it. Well, to a great degree, it's semantics. Either way, you have to deal with God. God is the one behind it. You still have to get right with God, okay? Just because it might be God allowing Satan to attack you, you just rebuking Satan isn't going to do you any good. You got to deal with God. God is opening this opportunity because of your disobedience or whatever. So anyway, so much for the evil spirit from the Lord explanation. So an evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul, just made him miserable. What happened? We don't know. Was it, uh, you know, did he deal with, you know, mental illness type issues? Was it, we don't know. It just, all we know is that 
this thing would come on Saul and instead of the anointing of God, the presence of God, the joy of God resting upon him and giving him great success in life, that had left Saul because of his rebellion against God and now this tormenting spirit was on Saul uh, making him miserable and at times it would just fall on him and I'm sure he, he struggled, felt depressed or tormented. We, again, we don't know what it is. All we know is it wasn't good. It was very bad. So Saul's attendants said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. They could tell something was really just ripping this guy apart. Let our Lord, talking about him, let us command, you know, command your servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you and you will feel better. So they knew something about uh, people who would play music under the anointing of the spirit of God that would bring comfort and soothing. These guys were pretty sharp, even in their simplicity. They knew some basic stuff. So they knew, they said, listen, we, ought, we need to find some musician to come when this comes because this music will soothe you and it'll bring you relief. So Saul said to his descendants, well, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. Well, one of his servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. So apparently people have seen him publicly play. He had to be pretty good. He's a brave man and a warrior. How do they know this? Again, this seems a little bit out of order. Well, we'll deal with that when we get to the end of David and Goliath here. He speaks, speaks well. He's a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Anyway, then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send your son David to me, uh, who's with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Now, we will see in uh, chapter 18 that David is playing music for Saul uh, when an evil spirit comes upon him. Again, I just think this little thing is out of order because we're about to see this next story and Saul doesn't know who he is anyway. So it just seems a little odd. So David came, into, uh, came to Saul, entered his service. Saul liked him very much and David became one of his armor bearers. Again, doesn't make sense because the next story says Saul didn't know who he was. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service for I'm well pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. What we do know from this, again, I think this is about a chapter and a half ahead of itself uh, for whatever reason. But we do know is that when Saul felt tormented, David would play. And David was greatly anointed of God. He was a great musician, a, a poet. Uh, and uh, if you ever want to read his poetry, you can find it in the Bible. It's called the book of Psalms. When you read the Psalms, these incredible poems are the lyrics of the songs that David had written. And these are powerful, powerful anointed. And you could see he was a worshiper in his heart. God loved this young boy because he really knew how to love God back. And he would sing to him and say these incredible things and prophesy uh, back to God in the, in the book of Psalms. Uh, which for thousands and thousands of years have been a great source of comfort to anyone who reads them. Powerful words. And they all come from this young man named David. Okay, so I'm done with that. Now, again, that seems like that little section was kind of out of place. Now we pick up the story of, of David um, and this big beast called Goliath. It's probably one of the most famous uh, stories in the Bible. Even pagans and heathens know the story of David and Goliath, at least in the slightest of terms. All they know, some of them, is that this little guy who didn't stand a chance beat the great big guy. 
So let's read this story, this incredible story that so many people know. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled in Soka in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damin between Soka and Ezekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah. Whoa! <coughs> Sorry about that. I tipped over my water bottle. Anyway, so anyway, so the, the Philistines are over here. Saul and the other guys are here. They drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Now, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. The guy was over nine feet tall. The dude is huge, okay? A behemoth of a man. Nine feet. Man, would he make a great center in the NBA. Nine feet tall. Over nine feet tall. Gigantic. He had a bronze helmet on his head, wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels, which is about 125 pounds, just his uh, uh, bronze armor that he's wearing. On his legs, he had bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back and his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. Its point weighed 600 shekels. I mean, this, all his armor and stuff weighs a ton. This guy is huge. And, uh, <laughs> and I like this next sentence. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Man, that had to be a lousy job. I mean, it kind of had to be a drag to be a shield bearer anyway because that stuff was heavy. I pity the guy. I pity the fool who had to carry the armor for Goliath. That had to be a miserable job because this guy was a big yo mama of a man. Now, you have to understand, this really freaked out uh, the Israelites. Again, this is not the days of guns and bombs and those sorts of things. You know, the gun is a great equalizer in life. These are wars back when it was mano y mano. The bigger guy against the other guy is not quite as big. The faster guy against the slowest guy. It was all hand-to-hand combat. And when you look up and see a guy nine feet tall and as monstrous of a man as he was and clearly very strong, this would freak you out. So when a Goliath would stand and shout to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Why are you guys out here for battle, he says. Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. Liar, because when he does get killed, they all ran. He says, but if I overcome him and kill him, then you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day, I defy the ranks of Israel. He'd come out and he'd taunt them. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. You can imagine. So here they are. These guys line up on this hill. The Israelites would come up and line up on this hill. This big yo mama of a guy would come out and he'd yell at them and taunt them. Say, come on down. Get your best guy against me. The best guy wins and the other guys have to serve the losers, all right? Now, David was the son of an Ephraimite named Jesse. Really, we know that already. See, that's why a lot of the stuff in the Old Testament was a history of records that were taken and compiled. And we've seen this many times already, you know, where they would talk about it, and then all of a sudden, it was like they started the story over again. That's because of the collection of the stories. These aren't major contradictions. And even if they were, they don't mean anything because they're just little historical things came 
this way or that way. So now all of a sudden they're introducing David, which we already know about. He was a son of Ephraimite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. We know that. And in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Now, Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. Again, we know this already. Now, we have to assume in the great scheme of things that Samuel had already come out and anointed David. But then everybody went back to what they were doing before. Nothing had changed on the outward. And then this big Philistine threat happens. The three oldest sons go to war with Israel. The other sons stayed home, and David obviously stayed home as well. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So he'd go back and forth. Why? He'd take supplies and stuff to his brothers and kind of see how they were doing. Now... (laughs) This next verse. For 40 days, the Philistines came forward every morning and evening and took a stand. The Philistine did. Goliath. Well, now this seems really odd to me. 40 days they did this. That means they'd all come and a whole bunch of guys would gather up on the hill of the Philistines and a whole bunch of guys would gather on the hill of the Israelites and they'd yell at each other, Roar! and then they'd go, okay, that's lunch. And they'd go back. And then in the evening, they'd come out and do it again. And they did this for 40 days. Now, that seems really odd to me. Now, I don't know anything about warfare, and I certainly don't know anything about warfare at this time. But uh, it seems kind of odd to me. Just every 40 days, that's a long time. Where everybody would just line up and yell at each other and then go back again. It seems really, really strange to me. But anyway, this was, this was a routine. Everybody get up, yell, the Philistine come out, egg them on, you know, wait till the next day and do it again. Apparently, um, the Philistines weren't that confident that they could take the Israelites, or I'm sure they would have come and taken them. So even though they had the big yo mama fat guy, you know, the big gigantic nine foot guy, they were not quite sure enough they could take Israel. So hence there was this big standoff, you know, and this big power thing and nobody quite knew you know, who was going to have the first opportunity, or maybe they were looking for, you know, had scouts running around looking for weaknesses in the lines. I don't know. Again, I don't know anything about war. Uh, I just watch it on TV. But anyway, so now uh, Jesse said to his son David, this is Papa, says to David, says, now take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread to your brothers, for your brothers, and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commanders of their unit, why would he do that? He's sucking up to the commanders. Why? So they would be nicer to the boys. Papa was a smart man. So he said, here, takes this stuff and give a bunch of cheese to their commanders, you know, and all this kind of stuff. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. He goes, yeah, I want to hear how they're doing. So there was Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Well, not exactly fighting. They were more like getting on a hill and yelling for 40 days. But this is what they were doing. Well, early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. (laughs) Here they are again, you know, day 40. Let's go. They all get together and stand and yell and then go home. I don't know. It's the weirdest thing. They all break and do it again the next day. So they're all shouting their war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. That's all they did was just sit there and face each other. 
Now, David left his things with the keeper of supplies, so he does what Pop says and gets all the stuff out. And then he ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. Now, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. Comes out again and eggs them on again, cursing at them, challenging them. You bunch of girly men, send a guy out. Just you, one guy against me, you know. Uh, well, David heard what was going on. Now, when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran. Now, this is the first time we see this. They ran from him in great fear. Why, again, the Philistines didn't come running after them. Again, there had to be this big standoff. Nobody really felt they had the upper hand, and they were just antagonizing each other. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. And the guys are all talking about this in the ranks. And this is what they said. Now, the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. So number one, whoever kills him is going to get a lot of money. Number two, he will also give him his daughter in marriage. So number one, he gets the money. Number two, he gets the babe. All right? And then number three, he will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel, which means more money. So this was the promise. Saul is basically going out saying, you know, does anybody want to take this guy on? If you do it, I will give you a boatload of money. Um, you get the girl, okay, and no taxes for the whole family, which just, again, means lots more money. Now, I love this. David asked the men standing near him, run that by me again. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should divide the armies, defy the armies of the living God. So they repeated to him what they had been saying. This is what will be done for the man who kills him. He gets a boatload of money. He gets the girl. And the whole family is free of taxes. So this is the second time he hears this. Wow, this is fabulous. Well, then Eliab, David's oldest brother, when he heard him speaking with the men, he got really ticked off at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert with? I know how conceited you are, you little twit, and how wicked your heart is. Brothers, you know, encouraging words from brothers. So he's basically chewing the kid out. and He said, you only came down here to watch the battle, you chicken. So he's giving him a hard time. And then David, <laughs> typical brother fashion, he looks at him and goes, what did I do? What did I do? Now what have I done? Can I even talk? Okay, so he eggs back in his brother's face. Brothers again. And then, so then he turns away to someone else and brought out the same matter. What matter? He wanted to hear for the third time what's going to happen to the guy who beats the Philistine? And they answered him as before. He gets all the money. He gets the babe. And no taxes for his entire family. Now what David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And then Saul sent for him. So David comes. So David's basically egging on at this point. At some level they're hearing that he's wanting to go challenge this Philistine. Now, <laughs> we often hear the story that David was strictly motivated by defense of Israel and love of country and for righteousness and for the kingdom. And indeed he was. I mean, there's no question about it. He was, he was insulted that um, this uh, 
Philistine would be attacking his countrymen and da-da-da-da-da-da. But make no mistake, it wasn't his only motivation. We've just seen here, in the clearest of terms, this boy was also motivated by the promise of a big load of money. He gets the girl and no taxes for the family. So, you know, sometimes there's other motivations that come into play. And, and in all honesty, you know, there are such, I often think of this in terms of the gospel and sharing the gospel with people. You know, the number one reason why a person should yield themselves to God and come to Christ and ask for forgiveness of sins is because the alternative is quite frightening. We're talking eternity in hell. That in, in and of itself should motivate everybody to want to turn away. But a lot of people just don't take that seriously. But there's another side to this. Not only do you want to serve God because of who he is and, and repent of your sins and allow his forgiveness and grace to, to make things right between you so that you can spend eternity with him. There's another side to walking with God. It's called blessings. The blessings of God. Your life. If you do this stuff right, folks, I'm telling you, your life will be better. You will be more greatly blessed. Your finances will be better. Your relationships will be stronger. Your health will be healthier. Your children will be more prosperous. There's no question. When you walk with God and do things God's way, your life will be better off. You say, is that a bad motive? Not at all. It's just like David who also looked at it and said, hey, I get the money, the babe, and no taxes. Okay? There are other side benefits to serving God. When you do things God's way, man, it is awesome. The blessings of God make rich, the Bible says. Now, it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to have millions of dollars, but you will be blessed. When you honor God and you put God first and you give and you sacrifice, you do all the things that the Bible tells us that we must do. When you do do it, there are great promises that come with it, great benefit uh, that come along with it. So, Everything from the great motivator of eternity with or without God, which should be enough in and of itself. There's also all the wonderful promises of God. God loves you. He wants to bless you. He wants you to succeed in life. Now, it might take a while to get there, particularly for some of you who, you know, maybe this is kind of new to you. You've only been coming in the last year or two or, or whatever, and you're just learning about faith, and you're learning to experience God. And, and we're going to see here in a minute how powerful that is to grow in your faith okay because that's part of the story as well but uh, uh even though this is new to you and you're still struggling don't be discouraged because as you get this stuff and you start learning faith and you learn how to really experience god and how to really trust god even in the worst of circumstances i promise you god can turn your circumstance around now, even if he never turns anything around, he's still God and worthy of praise and glory and honor. Hallelujah. Okay? But the good news is that he will turn your circumstances around. It's like the side benefits of this battle. There were some great side benefits for David when he did the right thing that God had put on his heart. Now, he needed to do it just because God put it on his heart. But make no mistake, the boy really wanted to rehearse what are the side benefits? And three times he went through it and really got a good handle on the money, the babe, and no taxes, okay? Even for us, our main motivation, serving God for who he is, but make no mistake, if you will do this right, if you will learn to walk in faith, if you learn to trust in God, without question, your life will be much more greatly blessed than if you turn your heart away 
from God. It's about, to be honest with you, and I mean this in all sincerity, you know, I know Paul wrote, he says, if there is no resurrection, then we are of all men most miserable. Because in his particular situation, he suffered greatly for the kingdom of God and he was persecuted. A lot of the early Christians were persecuted and, and you know, from that context, yeah, man, if there's no heaven, this really bites. But aside from being in that kind of circumstance, make no mistake, the blessings of God are so wonderful. The truth of God's word is so powerful. The wisdom and success that comes from following this pattern of living is so successful. It is worth following if there is no heaven. That's how powerful. Now make the most, no mistake, there is a heaven and there is a hell. Trust me on this one, okay? A lot of people who don't think there is are in for a big surprise when the lights go out up here, okay? There is a heaven, there is a hell, but I'm just telling you, God's blessings, his word, his instructions for how to live life and love people and to prosper and succeed in life, these things are so fabulous. It is worth turning away from sin and serving God just on that part of it, even if there was nothing else. So great are the blessings of God. The good news is that there is eternity with him. Uh, our hope is not just in this life, as wonderfully blessed as it can be. The good news is we're just passing through this place, man. And we are headed for eternity with him. Okay, now, so anyway, David's out there. He's talking it up. You know, he's motivated. He wants to go kill this Philistine because he's a big, fat, stinking jerk, and he's insulted. He's insulting his countrymen, and, uh, but he's also motivated by the benefits. And uh, so Saul hears, who's this guy? Who's this guy? What's he talking about? So he goes, and David comes to him, and he says this to Saul in verse 32. He said, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. In other words, I'll go do it. I'll go beat him up well Saul replied you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him you are only a boy and he has been a fighting man from his youth all right and then David starts to explain to Saul why he believes he can do this and this is where we're going to look at the importance of building faith one step at a time and that's where we're going to pick it up again next Wednesday. So don't miss this. This is some really powerful stuff. This is, this is why don't be discouraged if you don't have great faith today, okay? And you're struggling with hard things in your life today. You want to start and build step by step because when you start growing in your faith, this is where you go and take on the Goliaths. He didn't just do this overnight. He starts explaining to Saul how God had been building his faith to the point where he believed he could take Goliath on. And we will pick that up at that spot next Wednesday. God bless.